Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. In today's episode, we are continuing with our second of a three-month series focused on value-based care solely from the view of the health plan. We always refer to our universe of value-based care as the world of the four Ps, patients, providers, plans, and payers. The health plan is at the center of these four Ps and interacts separately with each of the other three of the four, self-funded payers, providers, and patients. Therefore, it's very important that the others understand the goals and needs from the view of the health plan. To continue the series, we have chosen the Chief Medical Officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arkansas, Dr. Mark Jansen. In his position, Dr. Jansen has a broad responsibility for supervising clinical strategy, population health, enterprise quality and risk management, and strategic data and informatics. This is a whole lot of responsibility. He's perfect for our show today because he has been very active in the application of value-based payment models, promoting digital health and telemedicine opportunities, including the creation of a regional program dedicated to diabetic retinal screening. Prior to this, he was a primary care physician in rural Arkansas for 29 years. So like yours truly, he's a doctor at his core. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Larry. I'm so glad to be here. How would you describe the view of value-based care from the position of the health plan? Well, we are a plan and also a payer, and so we're in full support of the principles of the quadruple aim. So you'll recall the Institute for Healthcare Improvement defines the quadruple aim as improved clinician experience, the better outcomes on behalf of the, of the results, the improved patient experience at lower cost. I do think it's important to talk about quadruple aim versus triple aim, because back in the day when this first came about, providers were really not part of that consideration. And I think if the pandemic has shown us nothing at all, it's shown us that providers very much need to be part of any equation, both what we do as clinicians, but also considering us as people as well. Payers uh, and patients, for that matter, they, they, we want value. Value in healthcare in the most simple formula is better outcomes and improved patient experience divided by the cost. I had a chance when I was back at the university to teach a health economics course to medical students uh, at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and I was trying to introduce the concept of value and came up with a visual of two cans of corn. Hmm. So I would, I would hold up one can of premium corn, uh, Del Monte, I think was the brand I used in one hand. And in the other hand, I'd hold up a can that you can get at Walmart. And incidentally, they call their corn great value, which I thought was ironic. And then ultimately, the question would be, does the quality of the name brand corn justify the higher price? And at what point would the differential be too much? So if the quality was essentially the same, why would someone want to pay more? And you had to consider was the perceived quality of the consumer real or an assumption based upon the historical branding because you have all the advertising for Del Monte. And then how does all of that apply to the payer and the patient? 
Uh, so it, I think it was a good way to introduce that topic to medical students. I'd love to see that visual. That, that, makes, uh, that makes so much sense. Um, is there a difference uh, in your, your view of value if the health plan is taking full risk versus when you are administering for a self-funded employer? Yeah, of course there is. So at the end of the day, we are a mutual insurance company. And that's, you know, for those that are not familiar with that term, basically we take premiums in and, and pay claims out. And we keep a bit of that for our administrative costs. So our resources come mostly from the premium dollars that must be distributed in an evidence-based and equitable way so that we provide services to our fully insured members. So us taking risk is potentially going to impact the collective resource we have to pay claims on behalf of all of our fully insured side. If we're in the ASO world, where the administrator only, the financial impact of that downside risk is falling on the employer, not on us directly. So even though we are just the administrator, the customer employer will still look to us to help them calculate the risk. And I see that as part of the service that we offer as the administrator back to the to the customer. The customer, of course, and, you know, insurance terms are, you know, I got to get used to member and, and not use patient. And then thinking of the customer, the customer is going to be that entity that is hiring us, uh, such as Walmart that we just mentioned would be one of our customers. So, so we, the, the jargon of the insurance business to a provider takes some getting used to just as uh, we have our, what I call doctorese. There's a whole language on the insurance side as well. So what are your biggest challenges? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> uh, we have no we pets have at a, home. We only have a half hour, Mark. Yeah, say. I know. My wife is a very sound <laughs> sleeper and we have no pets. So not, not too much, I would say. Uh, I, the, the thing that is the biggest challenge is making the determination as to what constitutes actual quality. So there's got to be an agreement between the payer and the provider as to what constitutes a true quality metric. The price point has got to be fair to both, and that price point is potentially lower if the provider entity is willing to go at risk. So quality, boy, that's a tough, you know, your, your analogy with the cans of corn uh, can, is very applicable to this as well. Quality, quality is different from the eye of the beholder. And I know from a specialist point of view, you know, most specialists look upon, like in GI, they pride their, the fact that they can do a fairly flawless colonoscopy. Um, but can they really prove that? Uh, what is the outcome? Can they, can they define their outcomes? I think one of our biggest challenges today is defining outcome, because actually, would you agree that quality is almost synonymous with outcome? Yeah, I think, you know, when you take colonoscopy, it's a great example, because the ability of someone to take a scope and maneuver all the way to the cecum is great, but is their eye trained to have a great adenoma detection rate? What is their cecal intubation rate? Mm -hmm. So you, 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 you know, the, the mechanics of doing something versus the skill set of a seasoned provider who just has developed that sixth sense in the environment so that they're, they're delivering a higher quality of service, think about somebody in endoscopy. They're, they're asleep. They don't know what's going on. You, you know, put them to sleep, wake them back up, tell them the, the study's over 
And uh, was it a good study or not? And you know, was it the first study of the day and the team was fresh, or was it the eighth study of the of the day and the two before that had been very difficult? So, uh, you know, understanding that from the endoscopic standpoint is a perfect example of real quality versus perceived. You know, I I, I had a visual a couple of years ago. There's something called a Monroney sticker, which is the sticker you see on the window of a new car in a in a showroom and it basically tells you everything you're going to get with that car for um, what you're paying i've always contended that in our in our gi gi labs we we need a colonoscopy monroney sticker uh one that'll tell the patient exactly what they're what they're getting for uh the experience that they're paying for it could be they don't want to read all that (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe not. That's that's probably true. So, of the you've had a, an extensive history with with value based care. What are the key features of the ones that you would call your most successful? Larry, I think a successful program is one that has common alignment across a wide scope of services as to what constitutes the very quality we were talking about. What is a quality event? So, a provider entity that shares risk is is better in the way that they are going to be self-monitoring for quality as well as cost because they have skin in the game too. Uh, When a a provider entity goes at risk, we become allies with that provider in the care delivery to the patients rather than being what traditionally might be seen as adversarial. Uh, You know, you mentioned the word risk a number of times here. And so how does the average size practice bear downside risk. We, we have to have bumpers on that somewhere, don't we? I mean, you, you, the law of large numbers doesn't protect the small practice. Right. And I think there has to be an imagination of how you accept that risk. And are there opportunities in a small practice environment, just like you have uh, small customers that are going to go at risk if they're, if they're paying the way for their health care? You know, one catastrophic claim can really harm that customer in a large way. So they might mitigate that risk with, uh, you know, stopgap measures yeah. uh, if there if there is an extraordinarily high outlier in the cost. And, yeah. and in the same way, I think if you're a small practice, it might behoove you to look toward some type of a clinically integrated network, perhaps, to try to distribute that risk. I, and that, you know, it's a hard thing. We, we all, uh, you know, we all have lived and died by RBUs and the R, the relative value scale. And so we have been steeped, if you've been a clinician for a while, into that measurement of what my value is, what my worth is. And when you start using a different methodology, it, it scares providers. I understand that uh, coming to this job as a, for, you know, a, a former provider, I would say, not certainly not reformed. <laughs> Um, well, we're always providers. I don't think we ever lose that core. So if you were, we've talked about some nuts and bolts as to what a value-based care, uh, plan would, uh, program would look like. If you were to design one from scratch, what would it look like? What would be its necessary components? Well, number one, everything is going to start with evidence-based medicine. We've got to be sure that the care metrics are based upon proven literature-supported principles. And you have to have data analysis that confirms that, if I could call it the target, is worth the chase. 
In other words, is the condition or the conditions you're looking at, are they common? Are the costs substantial? Are there well-established metrics of care with significant deviation from those standards that would allow you, uh, the payer or the payer provider partnership in concert to bend that cost and quality uh, curve as far as outcomes? You know, we have heard over and over again uh, a statement that GI is not in our focus this year. And so you, you just hit on that. So I like your term, that is the target worth the chase? You know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is, is this something that occupies a significant point? Um, so how do you choose that? in the health, from the health plan? How do you choose which target is worth the squeeze or worth, worth the chase? Well, I think you'd have to look at how the plan would be implemented. So there's gotta be an agreement uh, among the payer and the providers and the customer, if it's an ASO, that the implementation would be worthwhile. There's gotta be an analysis of the population that would be undertaken to determine the prevalence of that condition. And uh, what's the present state of care delivery uh, then an al uh, alternative opportunity of management would have to be reviewed. What's your plan to do different than same? And are there common adverse outcomes or costs that you can address by either better surveillance in that population or looking at a way that you get further upstream in the disease process so you could afford you know, less disease burden to the patient so they're happier because their quality of life is better. And at the same time, you reduce the collective cost. And as it is in the ACO model, you know, can a historical baseline of total cost of care be established for that population so that you can have true measurement of, of value, if you, if you would, savings by the alternative approach that you propose so that if there are savings, those can be shared? You, you brought up ACO. We're going to get into that in a second, but I'm going to break here real quickly and say to the audience, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K., our guest today is Dr. Mark Jansen, Chief Medical Officer at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arkansas. So let's let's talk about let's talk about ACOs. Um, I sit on the the PTAC, the Physician Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee for CMS, and uh, CMS is and they've published this, so I'm not presenting anything that uh, is not in the public domain. CMS is looking for large population health entities to contract with, like ACOs. Now, you have a personal experience in developing and working in ACOs. Where do you see the CEO sit in your uh, strategy uh, from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arkansas? Are the ACOs a, a viable strategy for transference of risk? What we're doing on our side is basically an ACO-like uh, approach called our collaboratives. So what we're doing is partnering with large healthcare delivery systems in our state to agree on quality metrics and then utilize that the, the analysis that we have through our data to make determinations about whether or not, you know, there's got to be an agreement between the provider and the and the payer that the metrics are, are worth it, the juice is worth the squeeze. But the, the you know, the, the ACO principles, I guess, is, is probably how, what I would say we base our collaboratives uh, upon. 
And, you know, one issue with ACOs that I recall from my time with the university, I, I was the primary care board member of an ACO between a large private health entity in central Arkansas and the University of Arkansas for medical sciences. And there, there appears to be a learning curve with ACOs. I haven't looked at the numbers lately, Larry, but I know when I was affiliated, we understood it was typically going to be a couple, three years before we could secure our footing financially. And if that's still the case, one of the scary things is, you know, if you go at risk right out of the chute, are there going to be significant financial downdrafts for the program? So for the two years I was with them, we did all right. We didn't set the world on fire, but we had a positive margin. I think one thing with that ACO experience, and again, this wouldn't necessarily be true with some of the other healthcare uh, provider entities, but at, at UAMS, our physician base was employed and salaried. So you had an idea of what those overhead costs were going to be uh, as a known from year to year. You know, it's the company that I founded and, and that, and that, you know, I work in today as the chief medical officer is Sonar MD. And, you know, we have focused on chronic disease in the GI space, specifically inflammatory bowel disease. And, and we've been able to um, succeed because IBD is one of those conditions that primary care doctors really don't care for. They refer the patient. And so, it lends itself well. It's not like congestive heart failure or, or, you know, hypertension where you have to have multiple primary care, specialty care interactions. Um, I'm sure at the health plan level, you get, you get hit with a lot of these point solutions. Um, and sometimes that's the only way a specialist can participate in value-based care. Um, so how should the large consolidated specialty practice approach the health plan? What could a large GI group in Arkansas say to you to get your, to get your focus? Larry, I think we all know the health plan cannot build everything by themselves, by ourselves, that point solutions are going to have to be part of the equation. The problem with bringing a point solution is more administrative and perhaps legal rather than medical. So how does the solution integrate seamlessly into a care journey sponsored by the plan? Will the solution be seen as a disruptor between the traditional relationships the plan has with established providers? You know, the, the concept of what we call around here provider abrasion. Uh, is the condition being addressed by that consolidated specialty practice uh, responsible for high cost or poor outcomes using the traditional provider space? So perhaps, perhaps the example of IBD with GI would be a good example of that. And then finally, there are some things you might not think about off the top of your head, like issues related to data sharing and the sharing of protected health information. So you know, does the consolidated approach, whatever entity it is, do they have adequate safeguards against data breaches? And do they have adequate liability insurance? The, the problem for the payer now is reimagining the services provided. Classically, we've been a transactional, almost a banking industry, if you will. You know, you hadn't really had an opinion about much other than was that claim processed properly? Did the codes match up? And did we take care of the member and, and pay the provider on time. And now, as you see the plans and the payers start to morph more into healthcare delivery, we know as, as providers, you know, we, we take on liability with, with that when we have an opinion or agree to do or not do something. 
And as the, as the, the payers and the plan start to morph into that space as well, they've got to understand the additional risk and liability that they're assuming when they do that. You know, some of the point solutions are designed to work with the providers. Some of these, and I think COVID's brought this out a little bit more with, with telemedicine, some of these companies are developing and they're actually disintermediating the provider in value-based care. Um, I'd like you to tell me how you view companies that are disintermediating the provider. And I'd also love to hear a little bit more granularity around what you did with um, the virtual evaluation of retinal disease in the diabetics. Yeah, well, let's talk about the first question first. That you know, the doctor-patient relationship I've considered to be very sacred in the past. So, believe it or not, there was a time before the internet when credible medical guidance typically came from someone through their to someone through their personal physician. So uh, you'll recall you also had to use a travel agent to book your trip. Yeah, and just as yeah. Expedia has changed the way we plan trips now, I call it the consumerization of medical care. You know, that's has expanded access to information and care. But in doing that, it's also fragmented or fractured that sacred physician-patient relationship. So when you're ordering your care like you order a pizza, it may be fine for a minor illness, but even then, can you really tell me that you're getting good care or is it simply convenient care? Mm -hmm. uh, how often do store clinics or telemedical providers give us what we want? For example, give me an antibiotic for my viral pharyngitis, which we know is inappropriate versus what I really need. So aside from the dilution of that physician patient relationship, the disintermediary uh, or the disintermediating of care it's even more of a concern when you're dealing with a complex chronicle medical condition. I think historical longitudinal knowledge of the patient that we have with our patients is important. And, and for that matter, you know, the, the provider needs to have that same as does the patient. And it's critical to get opt optimal management. I'm worried about the fragmentation of care because the more disjointed the approach, you're really going to have trouble offering that quality experience. And at the end of the day, outcomes are the ultimate measure. It can be convenient and it can be cheap or cheaper or less costly, but if you don't have a good outcome, it's not going to be good care. Uh, what we did at UAMS uh, in, in the program I was in, we had a distributed uh, eight different family medicine residency programs around the state in Arkansas, most of which were located in rural areas. And as I mentioned earlier, Arkansas has a significant diabetic population and getting someone, it, it was crazy. I worked in a clinic on the campus and the eye center, the, the Jones eye center was across the street from our clinic. And it was like, there was a 20 foot wall between our clinic and that clinic to get a patient with diabetes to go across the street to get an appropriate eye exam. So what we did, we, we had a pretty robust telemedicine experience already on the campus. And we went out and bought very high quality uh, uh, retinal cameras, not just a little handheld ones, not to put those down, but I mean, we bought the real, you know, $45,000 cameras and put them in all of our residency programs and then had appropriate training to uh, get imaging. And interestingly, at that time, I was not yet with Blue Cross and Blue Cross was not paying for retinal photography. So we created a pilot with the payer I now represent 
and showed really good quality, uh, improving the ability to do proper high quality diagnostic retinal assessments of patients with diabetes. And we weren't applying that to individuals who already had an established relationship with optometrist or ophthalmologist, but we were simply trying to save sight for the, for, you know, the, the folks in Arkansas that had this problem. And again, prevalence wise, it is a big problem in our state. And it just seemed like a, a no brainer to utilize the telemedical network that was there, get the cameras, work with the ophthalmologist on the campus, create a PAC system where we could actually drop those images that could be uh, uh, reviewed in an asynchronous store and forward uh, technique, which is great. And they could just flip through it like they were looking at National Geographic and disease, not disease, disease, not disease. And once we discovered it, we weren't trying to manage it. We simply wanted to find it and get it into the appropriate hands for specialty management. Well, Mark, you've given us a lot to think about today. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to, to participate in this podcast. Thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. Lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.